3: Hello, this is the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast, coming to you this week from London's Criterion Theatre. I'm Nick Curtis, the Standard's Chief Theatre Critic. Hello, I'm Nancy Durrant, Culture Editor. Hi, I'm Nick Clark, the Deputy Culture Editor.
2: Coming up, we'll be reviewing A Little Life, starring Happy Valley's James Norton, It's a Sin's Omari Douglas, and Bridgerton's Luke Thompson, based on the novel by Hanya Yanagadhara. It's now on at the Harold Pinter Theatre.
3: Plus, for our second review, we'll be discussing Ryan Calais Cameron's *For Black Boys Who Have Considered Suicide When the Hue Gets Too Heavy. Let
0: a black boy die! and let him take up as much space as he needs. Let him step into his promise. Don't you dare hold him back.
3: That's all at the Apollo Theatre after runs at the Royal Court and the new diorama.
0: We'll also be joined by Natasha Hodgson and David Cumming to talk about their new musical, Operation Me. If
4: you want to beat them Jerry's, you got to call upon the visionaries trouble. Don't scream and shout. Just call the English we we'll all out. It's Ambition. Time to show you've got
0: vision. That's on at the Fortune Theatre.
2: They'll be hoping that theatre lives up to its name. They're following on from the very recently departed The Woman in Black, which ran there for, what, 33 years?
0: We're coming to you this week from the Lord Attenborough Bar at the Criterion Theatre. We're surrounded by cherubs and some lovely stained glass windows in the theatre that's just about still home to The Unfriend.
3: Yes, uh, the writer of The Unfriend, Stephen Moffat, of Sherlock and Doctor Who fame, was our first interview on this podcast.
0: Yes, and
2: obviously you can listen to that whenever you want, but I think the show's on for a couple more weeks, isn't it?
3: Yes, Sunday, April 16th. It's been a fairly quiet week for openings this week, hasn't it? The major news... Was something else?
0: Yes it feels uh, like an age since the Olivier's last weekend. Um, Everyone in theatre's keeping a low
3: profile. There
2: weren't really any big surprises at the Olivier's were there?
3: No I mean I personally was surprised that my neighbour Totoro did so well really (laughs) uh, (laughs) because but I I was sort of aware that um, I was a slightly alone voice crying in the wilderness at my my slight that 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 show left me slightly cold you know I could uh, could acknowledge its its technical superiority but it just didn't sort of move me in any way. I think you felt the same. Yeah I did
2: I think I mean the the thing is, you know, Studio Ghibli is kind of a cult and like so many people, grown-ups and children, absolutely love it. And as you say, I mean, I, I, I can watch the films, I quite like them, but I probably don't need to see them more than once. And it just wasn't it just wasn't for me, but it was kind of an extraordinary... So I wasn't wildly surprised.
3: Yeah, just one other thing to pick up on, I suppose, is that um, all the old sort of musical uh, big names are absent this year. Mm. All the nominees for Best Musical are, are... pretty much newcomers well I mean I suppose Elton John and Jake Shears you couldn't call as newcomers for Tammy Faye at the Almeida <laughs> but uh, but you know that's that's James Graham the writer is the motivating force in that you yeah. know rather than the big producers like Andrew Lloyd Webber or Cameron McIntosh standing at the sky's edge at the National was the winner in that category Yeah. you know again Chris Bush um, incredibly she must be vying with James Graham for the title of most prolific playwright around at the moment yeah. nice to see special award today Marlene Phillips and a lifetime achievement award to Sir Derek Jacoby who uh took the opportunity to rail against ticket prices being too expensive and he did. rendering theatre elitist which uh, you know some people would argue it always has been to an extent but I think you know he's He's, he makes a salient point that we discussed in the podcast last week.
2: Yeah, him and um, Waleed Akhtar, who won best achievement in affiliate theatre oh, for yeah. his show The P Word. Yeah. He was the only other person who made a sort of even vaguely political speech, which was, you know, I, I, I suddenly I realised I was there actually. And it was very much kind of here are all the people I want to thank. Thank you very much. I'm very nice. And like nobody really said anything. Nobody took that opportunity except for Waleed, and I felt like that was uh, that was a, it was a good good yeah. from him. There's not much else to talk about. <laughs> Isn't? It <laughs> <happened>. Well, <laughs> early
3: doors for the podcast this <laughs> week then
2: <laughs> yeah. Shall we um, kick off with our first review then? Yes It's A Little Life at the Harold Pinter Theatre
3: This is an adaptation by Ivo van Hover The Belgian director who mostly works in Amsterdam But massively internationally Uh, of Hanya Yanagihara's controversial and runaway hit novel about four college friends making a go of it in New York, one of whom, it is discovered, has been serially and multiply abused throughout his life. And it's about his friends' attempts to, to sort of break through the carapace of shame that uh, he's developed as a result of this it stars James Norton who a few of you may have heard of <laughs> um, he's been in a couple of little TV things like Happy Valley and Grantchester he does have a, a stage track record he was um, at the Donmar a couple of years ago but this is a real step up for him it's an incredibly challenging part to play not just because of the subject matter but because he's on stage almost the whole time it lasts almost four hours I, it's, it's, I suspect this is going to be very much a Marmite production it's not something you could actually say that you like but I think it's a it's a tremendous piece of theatre it's a tremendous piece of work
2: I was dreading this (laughs) it was not quite as horrific as I was expecting but it's pretty bloody relentless I mean it's not saying a great deal is it it's not horrid but in and of itself I agree with you I think this is a really really Good piece of work. I know that you've read the book, and you said in your review that um, you found it sort of compelling but horrifying, and wanted to kind of throw it away from you. Yeah, I couldn't
3: put it down, but I really wanted to actually physically hurl it away from me at times. I found it exasperating and compelling in equal measure.
2: I haven't read it, and when I knew I was going to go and see it, I sort of thought maybe I should read it, but then I kind of fell back on my original instinct, which was, you know, it's. 800 pages of unrelenting misery, and maybe my life is too short. But also, I felt like what that allows me to do is to judge without any kind of prior um, understanding, although I knew it was going to be you know, full of terrible things, that whether or not it works in its own right as a theatrical adaptation or as a, sorry, as a theatrical piece on its own, I genuinely think it does.
3: Yeah, we should probably give a couple of trigger warnings here, which they do give. Quite rightly, there are graphic descriptions uh, and enactments of sexual abuse, um, very graphic renderings of self-harm. It is sort of relentless. I mean, the, the book is relentless. The play is fairly relentless. Yeah,
2: I was trying afterwards to, even though I thought it was very good, to work out why why it existed. (laughs) But I was with somebody who was saying, he was sort of quite cross about it, I think, and he was saying, you know, uh, uh, art should have a moral. And I kind of, it's not easy to ascertain what that is here. And actually I've been sort of thinking about it ever since. You know, why is it a facile expectation of a piece of art that it should give us an easily discernible moral? Or is it okay if it just sort of explores various different areas of experience and doesn't leave you with an easy conclusion? Like, is it just too much to ask? Or is it just absurd that we should expect that? And I I sort of feel like it maybe is. Yeah,
3: I think that's probably right.
2: There are sort of two sides to this um, that I could see. And one of them is the experience of Jude, which is almost unbelievably horrific. I do know some people who sort of said, when the last kind of arrow of fortune hits him in the book, you're just like, oh, come on. You know, it gets to that point. And it's so horrific that actually it's almost quite difficult to empathize because it's so beyond, thank God it's so beyond most people's experience. There's a risk of
3: overkill, isn't there? Yeah,
2: but what I did find deeply moving about it and, and what actually made me a little bit teary when I came out of the theatre, I had to take a few minutes to kind of just, you know, just to sort of um, discombobulate myself was the reactions of all of the other characters, like the deep, unconditional, unrelenting love that they were giving to him consistently throughout, even when they didn't know and they couldn't understand why he was in such pain and he couldn't tell them. And how sad they were how completely devastated they were by what happens to him in the end it was that that just really got me it
3: is one of the triumphs of this production over the inconsistency or the problems of the story um there there does have a question that has to be asked of how have these people formed this deep 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 love for somebody who tells them nothing about himself and they quite often exasperatedly say to him why don't you talk to us? And you sort of think, well, how have they formed this friendship? What's it based on? Um, I'm not giving too much away That if I, if I sort of tell you that he's basically sold into slavery as a child prostitute yeah. at one point, uh, well, for, for most of his life, and abused through every sort of part of the care system or the, 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 the structures that are supposed to protect him. Yet he manages to be this brilliant lawyer, mathematician, Interpreter of Marla's leader yeah. and Baker, and you think, well, how did he?
0: How did he manage this? <laughs> so I haven't seen this, and that's why I've kept quiet. But it sounds like it's an amazing adaptation. But. Is it Amazing Night of the Theatre?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I sort of think it's, it's very clearly when you watch it, a very good adaptation of a novel. Often, I think one of the problems of adaptation is that you lose that sort of narrative sense and that that sort of um, the kind of gorgeous texture of writing and language, which can be a lot of the appeal in the novel, especially, I assume, in the case of a one that is so genuinely horrible. Mm. Um, but in this case, that is sort of overcome by a device Uh, which sounds annoying but isn't and which also serves to make it possible to express a lot of the horror that Jude goes through without having to show it. So the majority of the abuse is actually described instead of shown, even though you feel like you're seeing it. Yeah. It's done in a very elegant way um, and sort of seamless, which is very difficult to hear but makes it possible to keep watching. Look, <laughs> you say, Is it a great night at the theatre? I cannot in all conscience recommend it <laughs> because it is deeply unpleasant. Yeah. But it is.
3: There's something about the sort of alchemy of this, uh, the way the the different parts interact that have have made it the hottest ticket in town, I think. It's not just James Norton. If it is just James Norton and it's just Grantchester fans going along, I think they're going to be massively shocked and surprised. (laughs) Um, I think think most people know what they're taking on with this. There were a couple of walkouts uh, last night on the night I saw it. Um, I didn't see any, actually. I don't think we had any fainters A couple of people didn't come back after that. So nobody left, I think, during the course of, or not in my sight line. During the course of the action, um, Luke Thompson is is great. He's a sort of you know bouncy, charming as Lovely, the actor villain. Amari yeah. um, Douglas uh, is has a has a nice sort of little scene-stealing turn as the artist JB. This very acid, um, queeny, bitchy character. Uh, the fourth character,
2: Zach Wyatt. Zach um, Wyatt he plays Malcolm, Malcolm, who's just like architect. a nice guy architect, yeah. and really he doesn't just, get much to do. No, really. he
3: just he just he, he, all he has to do is sort of rush in and say, "I've designed." this flat view or I've designed this house for you. That is, that's <laughs> yeah. his sole role really um, Zubin Vala I think is, uh, is great in a, in a really tough role as this entirely selfless individual, older man who adopts Jude as an adult without wanting anything from him yeah. um, that's, that's almost impossible to play and he does it very delicately and well are there any laughs? a um, couple in the second um, half uh,
2: yeah maybe I do remember a certain I don't think it was that funny I think we were all just relieved <laughs> <Yeah>. yes
3: <laughs> I think that's right
2: that's on at the Harold Pinter Theatre until June the eighteenth.
3: Should we go for a quick ad break?
2: Yes, yeah, so coming up, Nick Clark and I will be joined by Natasha Hodgson and David Cumming of Spitlip Productions to talk about their new musical Operation Mincemeat. So stick around.
0: In the meantime, why not give our podcast a rating? Your chance to critique the critics, but uh, five stars would be much appreciated. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile.
4: Hi, I'm Marisha Wallace and you're listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast.
2: Today we're thrilled to be joined by Natasha Hodgson and David Cumming, one half of the theatre company Spitlip, the geniuses behind the musical Operation Mincemeat which opens at the Fortune Theatre in the West End on May the 10th. Natasha and David welcome!
4: Hooray! Hello. Thank you for having us!
2: Yeah. <laughs> Could you very briefly tell us what the musical Operation Mincemeat is about? Uh, absolutely. So, it's
1: 1943 and we are currently the Allies losing the war. Uh-oh. Oh no, not a good situation for us. Um, and Churchill has basically rounded up his weirdest guys, that's uh, a technical term, uh, to <laughs> say we need some strange ideas in which to to try and make Hitler and his troops move away from mainland Europe because they are all over at the moment and it's no good for us. And so, yeah, one of the crazy ideas that he came up with, um, with them alongside uh, people like Ian Fleming, who was working for um I at the time, was this mission, Operation Mincemeat, Me, which was essentially to dress up a homeless corpse as a, a military man, throw him in the sea via a submarine, wash him up in Spain, hopefully, uh, containing fake documents, about about a mission to where we're going to uh arrive in in uh, Europe all of it fake and hope that Hitler found it that his troops delivered it to him and that it would make him move a load of troops so we could enter Europe uh, faithful and easily easy as mm. simple as that really uh, lip. we won the yeah all. we did it <laughs> <laughs> and where did you come across the story first so basically we, we've been trying to we've been a comedy troupe um, for, for a bit uh, but putting a little bit more of music every single time because we just can't we couldn't help ourselves every single new show it was like is there another song in this yeah we love, we love ourselves we and we basically had to admit to ourselves that we were essentially at this point sort of starting to write musicals.
4: Yeah, it was um, a horrible realization. It was terrible. We're still not over it, honestly. <laughs>
1: we wanted to base it on a true story, um, just because we thought that would give us like a good backbone. We'd never written a musical before, but we were struggling to find something. And I was on holiday um, with my family uh, and my younger brother, who is vet, uh, so didn't you know doesn't really know about this creative stuff. As I enjoy telling him, was like just took out his headphones, and was like. I know a thing that should be a musical. I'm listening to a podcast on it right now. And I was like, Joe, listen, stick <laughs> to the cows and the sheep. You don't know what you're talking about. Um, but unfortunately, it was about Operation Mince Me. It was a Stuff You Should Know podcast, but Operation Mince Me. And I listened to it and thought... Well, crap, he's done it. And I sent it to the rest of the guys. And unfortunately, we thought to ourselves, are we really going to make a musical about World War Two? Yeah, I mean, initially
4: I was like, you are having," um, <laughs> He wasn't happy. Absolutely not. And, then and I was like, oh, for God's sake. There's, there's, there's crazy corpses, there's mad
1: pilots, there's coroners, yeah. there's secret agents doing mad stuff everywhere. It's just not the
4: World War Two that you ever get to. Taught about, you're like,
1: wait a sec, this is bonkers and this fun is absolutely and silly mad. and mad. Uh, the story, as you said, it's been around for a
2: while. There are books, there are films, but this is a very different uh, approach to the
4: story, <laughs>
0: isn't it? Yeah.
4: Tell me about that. Well, we, I mean, when we heard the story, we were struck by, as we said, how bonkers and crazy and madcap uh, it is. And the more we dug into it, the more insane it seemed to get. So, from our perspective, any version that isn't. That is a comedy, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely a comedy. That's crazy business. It's definitely a comedy. It's buddy comedy. Um, so seeing other productions take a slightly different, more perhaps po-faced route or more serious um, route is, of course, interesting. I mean, it's just not how we viewed the, the the shape of the story. In I itself. think
1: also like we one of the books that we read as you said there's, there's a few around but you, uh, you and Montague who Colin Firth plays and indeed I play in in the show he wrote a book called The Man Who Never Was about his experiences of of doing this of this mission and it's so funny and he is such a funny man and he they're obviously having the time of yeah. their lives for us. Not those people. That was a really funny angle and yeah. a way in, and particularly because we, because oh, it's stage and you kind of, you know, there's lots of imaginative stuff you can do on stage. We knew from the top that we could play these people yeah. and it would be fine. Whereas in a think, you know, in in a more serious movie adaptation or whatever, you can't really have the fun of that. You can't really do commentary on the thing that you're portraying quite so easily away. Um, so yeah, for us, it was it was a really fun puzzle tangle to kind of extract the fun of the mission and like the admiration for the genius of of what occurred, but also at the same time kind of taking a pop at the top and going like yeah sure you could do it You're, you've got all the money yeah, and the course. power yeah. exactly. it's a lot easier when you can do that
2: it, is, it was a brilliant and ingenious plan but you don't shy away one of the things I really enjoyed is that you don't shy away from showing the sort of the sheer arrogance yeah. of these guys oh we love
4: it <laughs> I mean yeah I mean actually <laughs> talking about that book in particular Man it Never Was when you know actually what happened because that was Montague was desperate for everyone to know that he'd done this and obviously it's a secret World War 2 <laughs> mission and like, his, his job is to not let anyone know it's happened um, and he was so desperate he kept literally asking the government being like can can I can I, can I tell anyone can I tell anyone <laughs> um, and apparently some journalists got a whiff of it some journalists like you guys got a whiff <laughs> of it the oh. for universe. Um, and the government were like oh okay well we need to get ahead of the story put out your version and <laughs> obviously it's a redacted version of events but also Chumley mm. who I play in the show and Matthew McFadden plays in the film he was kind of brains behind it and yeah. Montague was the kind of driving force the engine that oh, the handsome
1: through. cool charming yeah yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Fine. <laughs> um, and Charmaine didn't want
4: anything to do with it because he was still a secret agent pretty much and was abiding by the rules um, and so Monty's version is just him basically being like and I walked in the room and I said god damn it i have got to do this <laughs> and it's, you can just feel the kind of arrogance and he's just got free reign to say whatever he wants about his own mission
1: they all sit do, like, there's a bit of a revisionist history of it in that they claim that the body that they used they had got mm. legally um, in, in Montague's official story, which of course ended up well, that it didn't end up being true. They they put they got the body illegally, they didn't know whose it was uh, for a long time. There's stuff that we couldn't, in all good faith, we we couldn't just put this a version of the story out on stage which is just like, and the good boys did good things, yeah. everything was good. Yeah. Um because it, it it didn't feel that way. But also at the same time, what we didn't want to do is create a story that felt like these were people with terrible. No, they don't. You know, bad it's, it's like you know. I think what's really nice about these characters and this story for us, anyway, is that you you can't really say, well, there's the, there's the villain of the piece, there's the good guy. It's it's complicated, and people do many things for many different reasons. Um, and that exploring those elements of all the characters has been really really good fun for us.
0: The show leans into the absurdity, obviously, with the songs and the comedy and all of that, but. Also, it treads that fine line when it needs to of, you know, the the tragedy and the loss behind. It is the Second World War. A lot of people died. Um, How easy did
4: you find finding that tone and how did it come sort of gradually? That's a really good question. Yeah, it came very much gradually. I think we come from a um, kind of comedy horror background. So we are very versed in Focusing on the joke side of things or the dark comedy side of things, where you have been less versed in kind of dealing with larger, more sentimental emotional moments
1: yeah but I think what was ama- like what was h- really helpful for us is that we literally couldn't just go down on a route with this story like yeah. obviously from the very beginning we were very aware of the heritage and the responsibility of of caring for this story and the people to whom this story would mean something and so we we had no way out <laughs> in, yeah. in a kind of really helpful way um, and we had to sort of be vulnerable ourselves in a way that we haven't really had to do as theatre makers before and vulnerable with each other yeah. and like it was very frightening <laughs> and remains in some ways quite scary to do that but the reaction to the show has been just such a monumental like lesson for us in if you take brave leaps and you try and be honest with yourself and you try and be vulnerable and you try and speak honest emotion to people mm-hmm. they give you that back
0: and the show it started at new diorama shout out to one of uh, the unsung heroes of london theater went to southwark playhouse uh, went to the riverside and now uh, is in the west end so how has it changed along the way
1: so much. Oh, God. So many <laughs> old is, versions yeah, of scripts. The curse, the curse of being in a show that you've also written is that you cannot ever leave the bloody thing alone. Yeah. <laughs> um, um,
4: it's got shorter, we can tell you that much. Yes, thank God. The, ori- <laughs> the original version, one, one scene was 26 minutes long. Yeah. <laughs> one song. <laughs> That's now nine minutes long. Yeah, a song. Yeah, quite yeah well um, It has grown up, I think... Uh, We've certainly added more emotional beats, more kind of dealing with the the wider truth of the story. I think um, also because obviously we, we all had to have a little break for the old the old friend Pando, old um, <laughs> and, but in, which obviously it was dreadful
1: in every possible single way. But um, for, for for us specifically, um, what was interesting about it is that we were struggling, I think, with a. Uh, the, the, there's you know there's a couple of amazing um, female parts in the show that are based mm-hmm. on real people. Hester being one, Jean Leslie, the younger sort of agent, being the other. And we were struggling to kind of resolve their um, story in the second act. At some point in the story, Jean gets, gets booted off the mission. We needed a song to kind of reflect where her emotional state was. And we were just struggling to kind of put our finger on what the yeah. problem, like what that motion for her was. And actually being in the pandemic and suddenly having this, all of us having this rush of... How helpless we were, and not just helpless, but how useless we were, yeah. was just so striking. I remember, like everyone was on Facebook group, being like, "Can I deliver medicine to my yeah. neighbor? Can I deliver, tum- you know, turnips to Mrs. Gross down the road?" Everyone was desperate to do anything, and and actually, that we can't. We were talking about that when we were talking about mm-hmm. this this story. And how actually at the crux of it—the worst thing about being part, you know, being part of a team that's being helpful—and then no longer be able to do that—is you're back to being useless.
4: You're back to not being helpful. And so think, yeah, we've
1: been very lucky to have such an amazing development period, really.
4: Yeah, I completely agree. And I think similarly, the um, kind of crux of the um, story, or uh, the, the kind of moral, I, su- I suppose, at the end is that kind of everyone matters. It's not just the people at the top. It's not just the ones the uh, lord lord that is the heroes it's the all the quote-unquote little people as well um including this homeless man whose body they use like he is part of this story and also there's the irony of someone who f- fell through the nets of society their body being used to then prop up and save that society at the end that ultimately everyone does matter and we don't
1: finding- have- we didn't have that at the beginning we, we? Definitely <laughs> a we had a lot all, of hats a lot all. of jokes about nazis yeah and and that
4: kind, kind of, of it grew and uh, that that softness and that honoring of the actual everyone involved in this grew with with the story i think uh, as we kind of felt the size of the show that I we I think
1: were we just, we about, just grew up as the show yeah, grew up didn't we like we we kind of were less frightened of tackling the stuff that felt more important in a sort of wider sense so yeah it was it was just it was great to have that time
2: Natasha and David thank you so much for joining us Thanks pleasure for us. thank you
3: Coming up, after this quick ad break, we'll be reviewing for black boys who have considered suicide when the hue gets too heavy. If you haven't yet done so, don't forget to give us a review below and hit subscribe. We'll see you back here in just a minute.
0: ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Matthew Modine, and you're listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast.
2: Welcome back to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. Now we're reviewing four Black Boys Who Have Considered Suicide When The Hue Gets Too Heavy by actor and writer Ryan Calais Cameron. Nick, you saw this last night, didn't you?
0: I did. And the buzz, I have to say, started from outside the theatre. There were queues all the way around the block for this one. It was amazing. And the buzz was in the queue. There was no sad faces. No, (laughs) Everyone was really excited. And it just worked in the space. It mixes dance. It mixes singing. But largely, it is monologue. Six young black men are in what looks like a group therapy session. There's no sort of therapy leader or anything. But they take it in turns to discuss issues that are on their mind. And that can range from anything from... Um, police harassment, to uh, abusive fathers, but basically it's all the issues, familial, societal, that are put on young black men, how they cope with it, what they think about it. And I've got to say, I don't think I've ever seen anything like this, no, me um, either. A represent- s- Sorry, a no, representation no. Of, of black masculinity on stage or screen. What's amazing about this show, it feels like young men talking, but the amazing thing is, is that they're talking about things that young men never talk about. Yeah. So, on the one hand, it feels absolutely in the register of banter. And on the other, they are discussing things that I know this, and Ryan told me this, as I interviewed Ryan, that people don't discuss. They were coming up to him afterwards to say, Oh, I can't believe you've articulated something that I've never spoken about, and you're absolutely spot on. I mean, essentially, these come from deep within him. They, Even though they're six, Characters and all with very big, varying points of view. I think they all originate, obviously, with him. This showcases all different opinions about all manner of subjects, and I think the joy of it, even when it gets really dark, is how vital
3: and how uh, just how brilliant it comes across. I yeah. Think. Each of the the performers sort of shifts between different characters through. Well, the they sort of, of the like stage?
2: each. They each have their own very distinct personality. Yeah. And each has his own. Uh, distinct story. None of them have names as such, and you ne- they never speak the names. And the names in the in the script are all variations on the color black. So yeah. onyx, midnight, sable, you know, pitch, yeah. all that kind of thing. They do all each have their own character, but they do sort of move seamlessly between and in in a, in a sort of a way. And so I think you never lose track or you never lose sight of the fact that they are while telling an individual story speaking on behalf of countless black men whose stories do mirror their own to some to a greater yeah. or lesser extent
0: above all the the sentence that really leapt out to me is saying that black men are not a monolith <laughs> and it's yeah. really yeah. trying to show something different sides, different aspects allow young black men to be themselves
2: yeah there's the lad from the ends who feels he has to subscribe to all the kind of toxic masculinity yeah. that that uh, implies there's the sort of slightly camp painfully shy comics nerd um, who doesn't know where he fits in anywhere. There are so many and they all have their own anxieties that they keep locked away and they're all different, but they all do have a commonality of experience up to a point.
3: I was thinking alongside uh, Red Pitch, which was at the Bush last year and which won our most promising playwright award for um, Tyrrell Williams. That and this together made me realise how much we've been lacking in this sort of representation yeah. of young black men on the stage. You know, yeah. these these sort of sympathetic, generous, um, open-hearted characters are not not what we're used to seeing.
2: No, it's true. It's interesting what you were talking about—the representation of black. Um, young men on stage, one of the things I felt that was super interesting, and I think quite rewarding as a white audience member, is to be party to something you can't fully be part of in the theatre. Like the privilege that we have in the theatre is that we are nearly always the intended audience, and the references are directed at us, and that is not the case here. It doesn't matter, you Mm. know, in terms of my deep enjoyment of the show, but the reactions throughout of audience members of colour on the night that I went made it very clear there is a whole layer of cultural references that went straight over my head because i am not black and though no two obviously people's experiences are the same there is a commonality and i think it's important and possibly eye opening if you've not had that before and i find that more and more now and that's exciting yeah but for a white theater goer to a get an inkling of what it is like not to be part of the dominant culture in the room at the theater and also of the kind of depth and richness of a culture that you don't know that much about because yes. you've never had to try. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's actually really, like, if you can just go, oh, okay, cool, that's how I'm going to experience the world tonight. Is, is I mean, it's a privilege to be able to do that without being forced yeah. to. But I think it's a really, I think it's a very valuable experience. I was
3: talking to Tanook Craig when she was reviving Jitney, uh, the old Vic, the August Wilson play, and she was saying that there's an important thing about having spaces where... It is about the black experience, yeah. first and foremost and primarily, rather than just that reacting to white society or, the, or you know things like that. And it, it does, it, it is a real difference. Well,
0: and it's it was kind of a privilege to be there at the curtain call. I got to say, because as it gets to this incantatory sort of uh, finale. The people around me just, I mean, exploded. There were amens, they were They it was extraordinary and they were on their feet. Yeah, to, to be part of that and as you say, you know, on the outside of that, but really just to enjoy the, enjoy the show but just see how much it meant to so many people was an extraordinary moment.
2: Yeah, and I also think it's worth saying the way that they interact on stage is completely seamless and there is not a weak link among the cast. And actually, I think, you know, all of these boys... Were nominated for the Best Supporting Actor Olivier Award. And I and I think you, Nick, also were quite disappointed that they didn't win. I thought Will Keane was great in, in Patriots, but I was disappointed not to yeah. see these boys on the stage. Um, and they are Mark Akintimein, Emmanuel Akwafo, Nabiko Ajimafo, Dara Hand, Aruna Jalo, and Kane Lawrence. Every single one of them is absolutely Super. brilliant. There yeah. isn't a moment where you go, I don't believe in that person. And for
3: them to have stayed together as an ensemble, since I believe that it's the same ensemble that started after the new diorama. I mean, I they obviously right. are incredibly yeah. tight and incredibly, um, I've seen them interviewed together as well, and they're, and they're obviously, they've formed, formed themselves into oh. this inc- this really, really seamless unit. And I presume um, they do
0: it every night, but at the end, they all went after the, b- the bow, they all went into a huddle. Oh, they clearly <laughs> feel, yeah.
3: Maybe some awards ceremonies need to uh, occasionally create an ensemble award. Yeah. I think it's slightly insulting to, to nominate you know these guys for each for best supporting actor. I mean, who's supporting whom? They're all well, they're supporting each other. they're all supporting each, each other, other. I mean, yeah, that's yeah, exactly yeah. what they'd
2: say. I was really sad not to see them
0: on the yeah, stage. Yeah, and for best new player. I've got to say, I I've, I've thought. Yeah give him his flowers mm. that's what I'm yeah, i say again what a time to be alive though in london yeah. you know, this
3: variety out there it is extraordinary and i think there's there is also a sort of post pandemic nimbleness in producers that people are picking up on mm. stuff putting them on for short runs you know yeah. chancing their arms slightly maybe not you know not massively not booking out a west end theatre for a year mm. but um, you know they well, just does seem to be greater
0: a- i've got to say and it's booking well so i had a look this morning um, i mean there are still tickets available i wondered partly whether following our discussion last week about streetcar whether for this pricing is is key, and you know the the top prices are sixty nine quid. That's right in the middle of the stalls, but really? in the st- yeah, but in the cheapest chips in that's the, the stalls, you, know, you yeah. comparatively speaking. <laughs> but in the stalls, you can get fifty quid tickets. Yeah,
3: that and wouldn't you wouldn't be able to get your leg into street, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> for Sixty nine pounds, but they t- and they go to twenty quid in the balcony. You know, uh, and,
2: and oh my god, book go everyone, yeah. book go now.
3: <laughs> what else is there to say we're not we're not in the pocket of uh,
0: (laughs) (laughs) of Nika (laughs) Burns
2: that's it for
3: this week's episode of the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast thanks to our guests this week Natasha Hodgson and David Cumming make sure to go and listen through our previous episodes too we've got Jenna Coleman Stephen Moffat Marisha Wallace and Danny Mays
0: you can find all our reviews and news online at standard.co.uk we'll see you next week